Hey friends, this is Ellen here to set up this week's episode. We don't normally do guest episodes back to back, but life's kind of weird right now, so here we are. Y'all are really going to love this one, just trust me. <laughs> I wanted to get out in front of this episode with a thanks to our patrons on Patreon, April Kamek, Megan Clark, Vikram Baliga, Paul Chomo, Ashley Tucker, Jacob Jones, the Jungle Gym Queen, Brianna Feinberg, and Christina Sanders. Thank you all for making this show happen. I am here with our new friend, Tyus Williams. Uh, say hello, Tyus. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on, Ellen. I really appreciate you um, uh, inviting me onto your podcast. No problem. I'm really excited for you to be here, and I'm super, super hyped about the animal that you are going to talk about because it is one of my favorites. But before we really dive into our animal for today, um, I'd like to I'd like for you to kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do in wildlife ecology and how you got into this field. Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Tyus Williams. I'm a wildlife ecologist. Uh, I, I have a specialization niche in um, carnivore ecology. I'm fascinated by carnivores um, of all realms of differentiating vertebrate taxa. But um, most specifically, I focus on uh, mammalogy and herpetology. I got into carnivores. Well, I first off want to backtrack. I, I've loved animals ever since I was a kid. I was always fascinated with just the unique and just majesty and just superior uh, power and adaptive ability that many animals have across the world and how unique, but yet how similar many of their traits are and how they could utilize it to their advantage in differing ways. I think I've always been just, just captivated by their beauty and you know, they're just their prowess at the same time. And within that, I've always loved big cats. So I think that's where it extends from. I've always loved the concept of just like powerful carnivores and just how they have such an just inextricable important link to um, environmental health. Uh, I think that's kind of where it started for me. I, I went to the University of Georgia. Um, I studied fisheries and wildlife science at um, Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources. It's an incredible program. Um, I, I probably, I learned way more than I expected to, and I and I have I retained a lot of the information. And uh, I think towards my senior year, I decided that I wanted to do my senior thesis. Um, and I remember I was like, I want to study a big cat, like, you know, because that was always my dream. I always, always wanted to, like, you know, generate this project or come up with this idea to uh, study a big cat because it was always a childhood goal of mine. And um, I ended up uh, collaborating with um, one of my PIs who's at Virginia Tech, and um, I did my thesis over jaguars. And that was, like, I think my first big step into the world of carnivore ecology. But going through college, um, I did a lot of stuff with salamanders. I did some stuff with sea turtles, did some stuff with rattlesnake tracking, you know, alligator mark and recapture. So I've had a really good hand of, like, very diverse experiences that have led me to get to where I am today. But I hope to continue my career in carnivore research. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you get into studying carnivores, there is so much at play, like not only their own strength, but also like the sort of strategies that they need to use to outsmart their prey. So you get into some really, really interesting stuff when you look at carnivores specifically. So um, I'm really excited to hear about the insight that you're bringing to us today because we're talking about one of my favorite animals of all time. And I was really excited that you decided to share your knowledge on this animal with us because, you know, like I said, it's one of my favorites, but I was so apprehensive to talk about it myself because I am not an expert and I really wanted to um, make sure that we were able to do justice for this animal. So I'm really yeah. excited to hear what you have to say. So um, why don't you introduce us to your animal a little bit? Yeah, sure. So uh, we're breaking down the tiger, which is also one of my um, uh, one of my, my favorite animal in the world as well. So we share that passion together. Yes. Um, I, I, so uh, tigers, just trying to think where to start off. Um, their scientific name is Pantheris tigris. Uh, they are a true big cat. Uh, so one of the ways that we distinguish big cats, a lot of people think big cats are uh, a factor or a metric of size, but it actually has to relate to their genus. Um, any cat within the genus of Pantheras is technically a true big cat. Um, cougars are not true big cats. They're they're recognized as big cats, but their their scientific name is Puma conclure. They're more closely related to cheetahs than they actually are the rest of the big cats. Big cats are lions, tigers, leopards, 
jaguars and uh snow leopards i think i got them all got them all <laughs> those those are all bitcat they all have a phylogenetic um lineage that relates back to a common ancestor 30 30 40 million years ago um as, as how as how old the lineage of felids are and so tigers more specifically are they are the biggest species of bitcat uh they think that's one of the reasons why we're so enamored with them um males can grow to be up to 400 to 500 pounds um, they range about 10 to 13 feet long. Uh, females are 220 to 350. There's some difference in sexual dimorphism with uh, a lot of big cats. Uh, one of the largest recorded uh, historical tigers, I think, was a Siberian tiger. Um, it was estimated to be around 700 to 850 pounds which I can't even just imagine in my head, like how big that is. Like, yeah. you know, like we, it, that's like, it's terrifyingly like enthralling, you know, it's like 850 pounds. And this isn't 850 pounds of just like weight. This is 850 pounds of pure muscle. It's a powerhouse. <laughs> like it is like, it is literally a, imagine a train just compacted into just one body. And this it's animal can also move that bursts the speed of up to like, 30 to 40 miles per hour in burst speeds. This is 50 Mike Tysons <laughs> packed into one animal. You know, like he's a fluffy like, freight train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fluffy freight train. Like you, when you get smacked by something that's that big, it, it not to mention the fact that they have retractable claws and their claws. I think alone, if I think if you measure like them, I think they're at least like an inch and a half or two inches in length or something like that. Like that's terrifying. So like it's going to do some severe damage. Some, some incredible facts about tigers and with such an, a, a tremendous and gargantuan stature that requires a an extraordinary supplemented form of diet. You know, you have to be able to sustain that um, in order to grow so long. Protein is in, incredibly important for them. They are hyper carnivores. All their diet consists entirely of meat, as you can imagine. But tigers can eat up to 30 to 60 pounds in a sitting. Uh, they can eat up to 30, 60 pounds of meat um, in, I think, in a day when they eat. Uh, when they choose to and they might not go on and eat on for like maybe like you know three to four days or like a, a week later um and they, they they eat in an intermittent way so like they'll eat a little bit and then they'll stop and then like they'll eat more but in generally in the whole setting they'll eat they can eat up to 30 60 pounds of like meat like that's like the concept of just like that amount of like protein and nutrients it just goes to show you like how important their their prey resources and allocation are for them like if you have to eat 30 to 60 pounds of meat that means that like that means you have to be a big animal and you have to be able to sustain those nutrients for your your vital growth tigers are located generally throughout asia and far east russia so i generally just like to say eurasia um you know india uh bangladesh uh, Myanmar, Malaysia, Sumatra, um, you know, we're probably all familiar with many of those those iconic tigers. Um, the Siberian tiger or the Amur tiger, as like people like to refer to it as, that's uh, one of the largest species. These cats, what makes tigers so incredible and what makes them such powerful animals is because they are so versatile and adaptive to different types of terrains. You know, we're talking about going from the the hot, steamy tropics of a mangrove swamp environment of like Bangladesh, per, you know, for example, to the birch woodland forests of far east Russia that can drop to negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Like that, like to be able to move between a range like that. And I'm not saying that that's one tiger moving between a range, but I'm saying like their distribution to be that expand, that, you know, that extensive and that diverse just goes to show you the breadth and sheer adaptability of this animal. That's been a good primer on tigers. So now we know what tigers are. <laughs> um, but so let's start off with the rating of effectiveness, which if this is your first time listening to this show, effectiveness we define as physical adaptations that let an animal do a really good job of the things that it's doing. So what would you rate the tiger out of 10 for effectiveness? I would say out of effectiveness, I would give it a 10, like a 10 out of 10. It's got to be, it really, right? It, it really, yeah, it really is. It really is the best at what it does. Like, you know, it, I mean, top three, top three best big cats easily I would rank as, honestly, if I really had to put it, I would say jaguars, tigers, and leopards. But it, but tigers also get a 10 out of 10. Yeah, they're not playing games. Uh, no one's going to step to a tiger. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, have you ever watched the video 
you know, it was some, uh, I want to say they were in India. They, they could have been in Bangladesh. Uh, it was hard for me to tell um, because their backs were facing the video. But they, they were, they were, there were some native men that were riding elephants through the, through the forest. And you have, to, you have to remember how big elephants are, too. Oh, you know? yeah. These, 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 you know, these are animals that get up to, what, I think, like 10,000 plus pounds or something like that. Uh, it more, more like 10, 15,000 pounds. Um, and... You see, you see this this movement in like the reeds um, off in the distance, and then you realize like like oh like something is about to go down like this is not going to be good, and then a tiger just bursts out of the reeds, jumps into the air, completely scales the height of the elephant, and just like just messes this guy up riding the back of this elephant. And I was just like, you're not even safe on elephants, <laughs> my God. <laughs> There's no one safe from their sheer power. I was like, oh my gosh. I remember I just, my my mouth was just agape. I was just like, egad. I was like, oh my <laughs> lord. And to get uh, that kind of air while you're like moving that amount of like size, like to be a, a cat that big and to be able to still clear that much vertical distance, like that yes. that is a lot of like leg muscle. Like this these tigers are not skipping leg day. You know that they're like clearing oh, some yeah. distance. Yeah, it is, it is it is the perfection of athleticism. I really I really think in, in in every single way. I think people think like what is one of the most athletic animals in the world? I I'm I would put tigers down hands down every single time and bet my money on it that they would win. They really, they really are uh, at the top of their game. Yeah. Some, you know, some really other cool things about tigers. Um, one of the things that we're all familiar with is their their camouflage. Uh, if you, I don't know if you knew this, um, Ellen, but they're the only big cat that have stripes. Like they're the only one that have stripes. Oh yeah. Now that I'm thinking of it, I, I don't know why that was like surprising to me. <laughs> And I'm trying to think in terms of the back of my head because there's over 40 species of wildcats. And so there's a lot, you know, there's a good handful. I'm trying to remember in the back of my head, like, are there any other species of cats that have like actual stripes? And I can't think of one that does in the same way that a tiger does. I can't remember if they quantify stripes as like uh, if it connects over their body or if it's just like lines on both sides. Um, but that, what, what I do know is that they're the only true striped cat. And it's like really cool to think that like you, you do, you start to think about all the animals like jaguars, leopards and cheetahs. And you're going through your head and you're like, wait, hold on a minute. You're like, yeah, they are. They're the only ones that have like really, really distinct lines throughout their entire body. You know, every, everybody's kind of got like marbled and spotted pelage, you know, when you think about like clouded leopards or cheetahs or jaguars, you know, with their rosettes and stuff. Um, so they're just, their camouflage is really unique to them. We refer to this form of camouflage as disruptive coloration. Uh, so you have to imagine that a tiger is moving through already a very dark green, lush forested area. Um, and those black stripes really helps as it's moving through vegetation uh, with all of that stri you know, striated patterns. Um, it breaks the, the outline of their body. So a prey item isn't really getting a full glimpse of picture of like how big it is, first of all, but also like where exactly it is too. It, it's hard for some animals because um, eyesight is different for various species to, to get a really good like form of clarity of like, is this a tiger like, you know, five feet in front of me or is this something else? Like I can't tell because like, you know, off in the distance, like their, their outlines disrupted. So they just looks like a blur and swirl of black stripes and some orange coloration. But here's the really interesting thing, Ellen, about tigers. It's often overlooked for many people, but you look at a tiger's coat, this sunburst red, beautiful orange fur that they have. And reddish orange coloration is actually, it's not unique. It's quite common for mammals. Uh, we refer to this as fail melanin, like red, reddish, um, reddish yellow uh, coloration that can be produced in the skin or hair follicles. You might know that eumelanin refers to like kind of more dark brown and black coloration that can also be produced in your know, hair and skin. Uh, tigers produce reddish orange hair, but what's really cool about that is that they produce reddish orange hair because their prey items, which majority of their prey items are unglets, they usually eat a lot of hooked animals, um, sandbar deer or boar. Uh, sometimes they eat guar if they get lucky. Um, I, I don't know if you know what a guar is. It's kind of like, um, imagine like an Asian water buffalo. That's how the best way I would describe it. Like they're they're significantly larger. Yeah, that's a big boy, huh? In, re in relation to the guar and all these prey items that they, they do predate upon, um, these are all unglets. So the interesting thing about tigers being reddish orange is that most mammals, specifically non-human mammals, um, they're dichromates. Uh, so they have a hard time distinguishing between orange 
in green coloration. So their prey items actually can't see them when it comes to like their color. They look like greenish, oh, yeah. drab greenish coloration. So it's so like that is so incredible when you think about the evolutionary adaptation that came into this tiger having a specific coloration that was you i think adaptive for it because the prey items that they uh that they feed upon can't see it they have a hard time seeing orange and green so what's really cool is that you know we refer to these animals they're, they're dichromates so they have two color receptors humans are uh we're, we're trichromates so we have three we can see orange we can see green really clearly we can see hues of blue all that stuff and so what's really cool is it, it just goes to show you that tigers were reddish orange because there was no need for the for this animal to produce the green coloration there's no such thing as a green mammal uh, yeah. there's, there's there's no such thing as a green mammal when you think about it, there's not a single animal that's that's a mammal that produces green hair or has green coloration because when you think about the different differing factors in um adaptive coloration and the significance of it it makes more sense for a tiger to be orange when their prey items can't see it in the first place that would be an extraordinary amount of evolutionary energy invested into produce green hair when they can't see it in the first place so it doesn't make sense for them to to be the same color a deep emerald jade green as their environment when the boar and deer can't even recognize it. So it's like, it's really cool. You know, you think like, oh, this deer can probably see that tiger. And it's like, nope, like probably not. <laughs> like, and they're probably going to get eaten, you know? So um, it, it's really cool. And uh, I, and also just to you know point out too, um, not all mammals are dichromous, mainly just unglets um, specifically. You know, marsupials are mammals. Um, they're me they're metatherians more specifically. Uh, marsupials are trichromous. And then you have birds and um, fish, which are tetrachromous. So they can see like they have four color receptors. It's incredible the spectrum that they can see in. And so that's like one of the most mind blowing, I think, characteristics to me is that like they literally in a way are invisible and not to mention that they already have the stripes. So it's like it is just this compounded uh, adaptive quality that they have to really ensure uh, that they can um, acquire their prey um, efficiently. Yeah, because I, I feel like it's easy when you're a human to think, oh, my gosh, he's bright orange. Yeah, that's really easy to see among the yeah. um, like you might think like, oh, that camouflage probably isn't helping because the bright orange really contrasts against the green. But I mean, if you're a deer, then it's all brown to you. Right. <laughs> like it doesn't yeah, matter. Exactly. Like, it doesn't it doesn't matter. And that's what that's why it's so cool. Like science, just our our, our ability to just like infer upon a deeper understanding like in a really intricate way to see exactly why the morphology or the physical features of an animal is is it is exactly the way it is for a precise reason and i think that's one of the reasons why you're asking me like you know giving a brief intro of my background i think that's one of the reasons why i think i also just got into um just ecology and studying carnivores i mean they're just they're such incredible unique animals that like have such an important impact on our environment whether it comes to trophic cascades or um herbivore ungulate population control and so you know just knowing information like that just gives you a more deeper appreciation for just their they're just their awesomeness but yeah so just trying to think what else i can what i can tell you about tigers um you know i can talk about their their sheer power we'll talk about some like their physical aspects too so you know tigers they're known for their physical power um they're you know they can hit up bursts of uh, 30 to 40 miles per hour um but they're they're not known for chasing they're they're not chase they don't chase uh like cheetahs do they don't they don't chase for long periods of time um unfortunately tigers actually have really bad stamina uh so oh. they have to they have to use quick bursts of energy and speed to subdue their prey in a short amount short short amount of time um, otherwise they get gas and they get exhausted really quickly um you know you have to imagine when you're you're 500 pounds uh, there's a lot of weight that you're carrying. Um, you're, you're, you're pretty much almost pure muscle. Um, while you might think that helps with like, you know, endurance for them in this case, it helps with the power and them being able to subdue their prey really quickly. Um, but in case of um, chase, uh, they're not that great at it actually. Uh, so they have to get to them really quickly over time. Tigers, many wildcats um, can have between one to five cubs. Um, now a lot of people know that actually, you know, uh, generally on average, uh, females generally produce um, two to three 
Uh, it's, it's just probably, I think, a reproductive strategy that they can have one to five or one to four, uh, just because, you know, because just in case there's the chance of you, you losing an extra cub, like they have the ability to like, you know, produce more um, and they're not confined to a specific like litter, you know, litter count. The females stay with the mothers longer uh, and the males leave, um, I think, around, I want to say around 18 months. The males are kind of weaned from the mother. Um, females stay longer just because I was reading in terms of, uh, reproductive strategies. Females stay longer with their mothers because they're just more, they're more valuable. Like it, it's just, it's a, it's a greater investment to have females in a population than males. And it's, uh, it's really cool to think about that. Like the difference in how like they nurture uh, their young, um, the males will go off and they'll be ready to start hunting um, 18 to 24 months. And the females will hang out a little bit longer with uh, their mothers until they're ready. But yeah, like those are kind of just like the, the more, bottom line facts of like you know tigers and their unique their, their their unique ecology and like their their adaptive abilities and stuff like that tigers they're so rare like to see one uh is like i think like a once in a lifetime chance in itself too because they really are incredibly elusive um you know people have this understanding you know like india because you know there are tigers over many parts of india that like you know people think there are tigers everywhere like you know like the tigers are taking all their cattle and like you know people are getting eaten and it's like that doesn't it doesn't really happen like you know it, it the, the historical circumstances of like a man eater like is really rare like maybe every like 15 to 20 years somebody like maybe gets like you know eaten by a tiger like you know and like that's just like a, a, a freak accident in itself too you know they they rarely predate on cattle um and even if they do like that's a rare circumstance as well sure but like it's something that stands out right so it, 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 yeah. it's something that you're gonna notice <laughs> and so even if it only happens one time everyone's talking about it and now all of a sudden it seems like it's normal yeah it spreads like wildfire. Yeah, you, you know, that's that's the thing about like, you know, if you're a farmer and you you have this cattle that's just like, you know, got eaten by a tiger, like that's going to spread like wildfire. Like, and everybody's going to start freaking out because they think there's like, oh, is there one or is there two or is there are there 15 like in the area, you know? And so uh, and unfortunately, most of the time that that ends up with um, a, a much more unfortunate circumstance for the tiger's fate uh, when these when, situ when these situations happen. Maybe this is uh, an opportunity for some myth busting because this is something that I heard probably when I was a child. Is it a real thing where people that live in areas with tigers will like wear a mask on the back of their heads so that the tiger will be thrown off? Is that a real thing or is that totally made up? I, you know, I've never heard that. You never, never heard that. I've never heard that. Like I, um, wow, that's weird. You know, you know what's funny is that like it, it sounds kind of like a mythos, but at the same time, it almost it almost kind of like makes sense, but at the same time, it it doesn't. Like like let's run a hypothetical for an example. Like if you were in a forest, you and I were in a forest, and. Well, okay. Well, first off, too, like it is, it is true, actually, Ellen. That like you never want to face your back towards a wildcat, like because it exposes your most vulnerable side of your body, and that's what they want to take advantage of. So it does, it does, it does cue like an an instinctual like predatory response. Um, that's why people say you should never run from a cougar or a mountain lion if you come across one, because you're just like stimulating that um, that fight or flight response for the uh, the predator to engage its predatory instincts. Sure. And so for me, it's like, I'm trying to like rationalize that. I think maybe what people are saying is that like, by simulating this idea or that you're somehow steering or you're making eye contact, like you're reducing your chance of being like attacked from behind. Like, I think that's what the idea is, but I can't imagine that that would change anything. Like if you were to stand up in front of a tiger and a tiger was looking at you, the tiger is not going to that's not going to reduce the chances of a tiger potentially attacking you like and wildcats in generally for the most part are very shy. So like they really want nothing to do with us. But that's really interesting. Oh, my gosh. I, I, have, to, I have to look more into that because like I, I under I think I understand the idea of that. But I want to say like I want to say that it's not probably would it change as much as you you think it would like right. if a tiger is if a tiger is going to attack you it's it's going to attack you you know it's like it's kind of like the same circumstance well because like you know you think about like the circumstances also like mountain lions and cougars like mountain lions want nothing to do with you but like if you come around a bend and you start with a mountain lion and you're facing it and you're looking at it 
in the mountain lion still decides like all right cool like we going in like we're gonna throw down like guess what like you're gonna like it's gonna attack you like you know so like having a mask on the back of your face i can't imagine really like reduces those odds any more than whether you're facing it you know Right. They're like, okay, that's fine. I'm still three times your yeah, size. Like, cool. It's like, I'm still three times your size. Like, you know, so it's like, uh, you know, we can try, but you know, so I've never, oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I've never heard of that. Hey, this is post-recording Ellen here with a follow-up to this conversation. So I wasn't making it up in the Sundarbans mangrove forest, which is along the border between India and Bangladesh. There is a high population of Bengal tigers, and this local population of tigers is particularly aggressive. So this led to a higher rate of attacks on humans by tigers, prompting the Indian Forestry Service to issue painted face masks to 2,500 people who were permitted into this dangerous reserve area in 1986. They proved effective for three years when people wearing the masks were not attacked by tigers, but eventually the tigers figured out that the masks were a trick and the attacks resumed. And this information comes from National Geographic from an article in October of 2016 by Carl Safina and Erica Serino. Anyway, back to the episode. Um, they're pretty much perfect. So you mentioned earlier, like the the sort of range that they have in Asia that they're found, you know, way high up north in like the like Siberian area, and then they're found in the Himalayas, and then they're found in more tropical areas like in India. Uh, obviously, like we've all heard of these different types of tigers, right? Like Siberian tigers, Bengal tigers, um, Sumatran tigers, stuff like that. You see a lot of physical differences between them. So sometimes you can even look at one, and you it you know one might be a lot. Um, more streamlined and have shorter hair. Yeah, and sure, sure. To, to start off with, are they all the same species? I can't give you an exact number off the top of my head how many subspecies there are. Um, there are multiple subspecies. So, for example, uh, the Bengal tiger. Generally, when people say tigers, um, they're thinking of Pantheris tigris tigris, which is generally your classic iconic Bengal tiger. Um, so you have like populations in Bang- Bangladesh. Uh, you have Indian tigers that are also a, that also have their own population. You have Siberian tigers. Uh, you have tigers in so you have tigers in India, and then you have tigers in Myanmar, which is a neighboring country next to it. Because the Hukong Valley Reserve, the Hukong Valley Tiger Reserve, excuse me, it is if I'm correct, the largest tiger reserve in the world. If I'm correct, half of the Hukong Va- Valley Tiger Reserve um, encompasses 25 reserves. That would be the equivalent over in India. Like that's how big the reserve is. Wow. Like it's massive. So it's like it is one of it's the largest tiger reserve in the world, if I'm correct. Um, uh, thanks to Alan Rabinowitz's conservation efforts, actually helped spur that. So they have their own unique population. Uh, so you have to you have to imagine all these different corridors in vicarious, um, you know, geolo- geological or geographical barriers between these populations allow them for the for allow for them to be recognized as their own species. Um, but tigers in general recognized or they're all they're endangered critically endangered okay let's talk about ingenuity so ingenuity if this is your first time we define as behavioral adaptations that let an animal kind of have an edge over others or do a better job of what it's trying to do or like solving problems that it encounters on a daily basis so what would you give the tiger for ingenuity i would give a tiger for ingenuity um i would also have to say i would give it a 10 okay you know, you think about the behavioral dynamics of predation. Tigers can take down animals that are five times their size. So tigers get up to 500, 550 pounds. Um, generally, a lot of the average males. Guar can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Like, in one of the unique hunting strategies for tigers, there's really two ways that many wildcats mainly take down their prey or subdue them. Um, they either can, they can crush the cervical vertebrae, so they can go for the back of the neck, which is common for a lot of wildcats, or they can, or if they're bigger, they will crush the windpipe. So they'll go for the jugular underneath. It's either they, they, they pounce on top, uh, they break their neck, um, or they go underneath and they basically slash their jugular, they bleed out, and they crush their windpipe. Felids in predatory cats really are. They're very cunning and they're very smart. Like, you know, it is, it's not so much just the tiger on the individual level. It's the evolutionary history of where, like, felids come from. They are very meticulous animals. Uh, one of the things about wildcats that people have to understand is that Wildcats are very particular about where they choose to move throughout a terrain, the corridors, the pathways, their elusiveness and cryptic behavior is it's inherent to their nature because they 
they kind of they don't want to be seen it's important for their survival being seen means that you're not eating you know and so um tigers uh, they're the way they move throughout their territory or at least their their hunting range specifically they can move from around one to 30 miles uh just looking for prey items um, but they're very cautious and very very conscious about each step that they take tigers have also been known just in terms of movement patterns have been known to move for 125 to 170 miles uh you know at a time and it's like that's they're, they're constantly moving. They have large home ranges, which is influenced by their size. And so that's nothing but just an, an outstanding form of ingenuity and I think effectiveness when it comes to their um, their behavior. Uh, you know, they they just have a they just have a predilection for just being very um, uh, meticulous animals. And because of that, it's allowed them to just be very successful in their environment. You know, they don't take risks unless they are calculated and beneficial to them, you know. So when they are like waiting for their prey, because a, a lot, you know, how they'll kind of like stalk, but but they'll kind of lie in wait yeah, for the prey. Yeah. Do they typically do that like down on the ground, like down low to the ground? Do they use trees? Like how are they getting that sort of leg up? So, I mean, you have to imagine, you know, tigers are really big animals. I'm sure if they wanted to, they could climb a tree. Um, it's hard for me to imagine Though when I'm thinking about the environments that tigers live in, like, you know, you think about Bangladesh, like mangrove swamp tire, you know, type environments like India, you have like, you know, you have urban sprawl, um, uh, you have scattered farmlands, you know, congregated communities, all these types of things. Like, it's hard for me to also imagine that there's a tree really large enough for them to climb sure. to in some ways. Um, you know, this is sort of 500 pounds. So I, I just imagine that they would expend more energy that would actually be uh, that would benefit them uh, in the end, rather than just using the typical uh, this selfie stalk and pouncing approach. So generally what tigers do and lions also use this method as well. They use uh, brush and vegetation in um, to their advantage. So they'll hide in the reeds. They'll use as much as they can, even if there's little pieces of it, they'll try to hide that hide behind it get really low to the ground, reduce their presence, um, wait for the, the wary cattle or war or boar in this case to become oblivious to their surroundings. Uh, and then they would take advantage of that either from using the top down kill method or going for them underneath the neck. Sure. Yeah. I, I would imagine they would just like not even bother with going up a tree. They're like, I got it either way. They don't exactly right, need to right. drop down from the sky. They're fine. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, the, and if they chose to do that too, then that's just like overkill, you know, it's like <laughs> just 500 pounds of pure muscle just landing on top of you. It's like, they don't even have, they don't even have to bite the animal at that point. They probably would just break the neck just by landing on top of it, you know? Um, yeah, no, so I don't, tigers aren't really climbers. They're great swimmers though. They're incredible swimmers oh yeah that's really cool to see too <laughs> yeah they're, they're incredible swimmers gladly will move through water in all sorts of like i said the marshy mangrove environments the gladly swim through those environments to get to different sides and move throughout their terrain they almost seem like they like it like they seem like they, they enjoy getting in water <laughs> Yeah, I think they do. It's weird because, you know, our general domestic cat, it is, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, well-known things about domestic cats that they, they're they terrified of water. They, they hate being in water. Um, I know that there are the cases that there are, you know, cats that do like being in water in in some circumstances. But uh, yeah, I think they do. Uh, but I, I think it's not so much like it is, it's more of like maybe a cognitive, like, you know, oh, like I love being in the water. Like I'm going to play around. And maybe they do. I mean, like I, I certainly def definitely don't want to reduce um, the vastness and breadth of the cognition of a wildcat because you know they really are sentient and they're conscious and they're incredibly intelligent animals um they are they are playful um and i'm sure at a young age like they do really grow accustomed to enjoying being in the water you know um and i, I just think it's also it's a part of their life you know so i think it's something that they just grow it, it just becomes secondhand nature for them uh, to just just constantly use it all the time but i think they do too i think they do like it also yeah uh, so you mentioned them being playful so last thing i wanted to touch on um before we move out of ingenuity is like their social behavior so i know that they tend to be solitary like in adulthood mm -hmm. at least right yeah so what are their kind of like social behaviors do they have to like communicate with each other Sure. So, um, you know, we see this throughout uh, a lot of cat communities. We we only understand technically the only social cats are really cheetahs and lions. Lions have actual pride. So they're the only ones that have kind of like these nomadic clusters of 
you know, these packs that will move throughout, like, you know, the Serengeti or these, these African savannas um, together. Uh, and they have like these very tight knit established like communities. Uh, cheetahs in many circumstances, uh, the males, if they're in the same, uh, if they're coming from the same mother, the males will stick together for a period of time as they're moving throughout Africa. And it's really cool. So you'll see like three male cheetahs and they're all brothers and they'll kind of like hang out together um, before they go off on their own and, you know, try to start their own family. The tigers are a little bit different. They're more solitary. They're a little bit more, you know, reclusive um, in some ways. Um, but what's really cool, though, is, you know, they, they communicate. All cats communicate by um, uh, urine spray. Uh, they communicate through scat, uh, scratching in throughout their terrain. Urine spraying is like one of the most important, uh, I think, effective forms of communication and signaling. Um, the it, it not only establishes territory, but um, it, it also communicates too between males and females when the mating period is going on, and females are are in eustress, so they're they're in heat, um, and they're also signaling that uh, they are looking for of a partner, and they're um, they're you know they're fertile and they're they have the ability to me what's cool about females though is i mentioned how uh, females invest a little bit more energy into their the youngs that are that are female cubs um, what's cool is that when females disperse from their mothers the the daughters will establish themselves near their mothers and so what's cool is that you if you look on a map you'll have like this kind of cluster of females that literally kind of live near each other and it, that's very similar to what um, lion, lionesses do as well. It's actually, it's really cool. So they are solitary animals, but they do have some social behaviors as well in some ways. It, it's, so it's actually really cool because the female tigers have a very similar kind of like distri- distribution um, in how they neighbor near each other like uh, female lions do. <laughs> at our zoo, at Jacksonville Zoo. I live in Jacksonville, Florida, by the way. Okay. Which is not too far from Georgia. It's probably about an hour south of Georgia. But so at Jacksonville Zoo, we have this just breathtaking tiger exhibit i mean it is enormous and it has these like elevated go. <laughs> it, it's, it's 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 extremely impressive um and so it even has these elevated walkways where the tigers can walk over like oh, the pathways nice. so like yeah. you could be walking like through the exhibit and you look up and there's a tiger right over your head Right. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Like it walks like over you, Mm -hmm. like the platform. Yeah. It's extremely cool. So like part of the exhibit, like the viewing area is in this sort of indoor area where you have glass on either side and either side of it leads to like a different part of the exhibit. So you can see tigers on either side, but a lot of the exhibit is just these chain link fences where you can get like surprisingly close to it. You can get like a few feet away from the chain link fence. And the the risk of that is that sometimes you can get sprayed. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, uh, I know that tiger urine is, is generally what they're using to mark, but I often wonder sometimes too, I was thinking in my head if like there's a different, difference in the the chemical properties in concentration of different like pheromones when they're marking territory and when then they're actually urinating I, I wonder that sometimes i imagine that it's all the same but um it would be cool i think to like look into that further um i don't know off the top of my head i was just i just popped into my head i was like i wonder if like scent spraying like you know is what people refer to it as does have a different pheromone like you know chemical property than just regular urine that they hold inside their body um yeah because like the delivery mechanism is a little bit different too right like instead of them just like squatting and peeing they're like it's like a it's a different yeah it's a different behavior like it's the mechanism of how they do it too so i imagine that there there is a difference between probably more of the you know molecular structure between the two obviously the 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 major component and base structure of his probably is like urine it's, it's urea I do. I would do wonder. I have to look into a paper. I, I don't know off the top of my head. I, I'm not like um, a molecular ecologist, so I don't look really. Uh, I'm not really well adept in understanding stuff like that. But I imagine in my head that there, there would have to be. You know, I would. I would imagine that if, if a female is in heat and she is marking territory, if she is alerting a male that she is looking for a mate, this or she's reprodu- reproductively available that the urine that she's using probably contains some form of like chronic gonadotropin, which is very similar to like when, you know, when women are pregnant, they produce um, human chronic gonadotropin or HCG, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is, which is uh, what they produce in their urine, which is, which is actually, um, you know, when women test for uh, pregnancy, like that's the chemical marker that signals whether you're pregnant or not. So I have to, I, I imagine that for the female tigers, there has to be something similar to that. 
that lets them know like, yes, I'm I'm ovulating, like I'm pre- reproductively fertile, you know, rather than just regular urine. Yeah, like she wants to get that message out there. So um, the last category that we have is pretty self-explanatory, and this is aesthetics. And I have a feeling I know what you're going to say for aesthetics, but I wanted to, to open the floor to you for your, what you would give them out of 10 for aesthetics. Zero. What? <laughs> get out. Just joking. You're 10. banned. 10. 10 out of 10. It doesn't get better than a good tiger, really does it? Doesn't, you know and um yeah they just it really doesn't like i mean they're like red dude i mean like they look they're, like they're like like made of fire yeah they really like look like they were handcrafted by like zeus himself you know it's like i think that's like i think one of the best ways i think you describe it like the gods just all came together in this collaborative like artistic project and they were just like let's make the most beautiful and most majestic animal on the planet and then they're like okay let's make it a tiger and then they're like all right dope <laughs> And then they dropped it on planet Earth. Agreed. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I wonder what it is about humans that, you know, we see a tiger. So we see an apex predator that is built to be able to essentially immediately kill us whenever it wants. Like our, sure. our response to seeing it should be like abject horror and fear. But instead mm. we look at one and we're just mesmerized by we're like, wow, it's so beautiful. Like, I wonder what that is about humans that makes us think that they're so beautiful instead of being like terrified by them. Well, I think um, I think I can answer that to some degree. I think it extends from a lot of things. It's a very it's a multifaceted form of perception that we're experiencing when we look at something that's so gorgeous, like tigers. Um, I think in part it, ex- it extends from uh, anthropomorphism um, and personification. Uh, you know, we we look at these features of this animal uh, and we can kind of like relate to them. They don't, tigers, cats don't look like us. We share chromosomes with them, but we can relate to that in terms of like one is in part to the fact that we have a very uh, direct relationship with uh, domestication of dogs and cats historically. You know, you go all the way back to the Fertile Crescent and you think about our domestication of, of dogs and then in, in the future, our domestication of cats, um, even though we've never really domesticated cats, cats have always been kind of really autonomous. We've always been able to relate to cats, I think historically as a species. And as we grew as a, a, a civilization, uh, our consciousness became more elaborate. It became more fluid. It, it became more not only just the encapsulation of Earth's beauty in finite details, but I mean, human consciousness itself is sublime. It really is. You have to think about the history. I mean, we've been around for you know, <clears throat> 2.5 million years, you know, homo from Homo habilis to Homo erectus or vice versa. I can't remember which one came first. Um, building fire and being enthralled by fire you know like you know fires that carnal fascination with fire is still a part of us you know it never it never left us and so i think that's where it partly extends from i think it's our our fascination not only with just the cat itself but i really think humans evolved in a way to appreciate this planet it's really it's incredible sometimes when you you think about it, like how high our consciousness is like it's it's adaptive for us as a species but it's like but yet we have the ability to like look at plants and look at animals and go like wow this is incredibly gorgeous like you know and i really think it is it's beneficial probably to us in the mental level yeah i think i think that's why um imagery is so powerful when it comes to educating like people about wildlife or getting people interested in wildlife is because like seeing them get, really gets you really invested in them it makes you think oh my gosh like the, the the world is so beautiful there's so many like gorgeous things out there and so you know you watch things like bbc's like planet earth and life and stuff like that 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 just give you these really incredible visuals of what the animals are like out there and like that's what gets people interested and like that's what gets people to be like yes i want to learn more about wildlife and i want to work with wildlife and like this is what i want my life to be so yeah i think a tiger is a really good way to just like get people hooked in this is one of those like charismatic megafauna like that people just are so obsessed like people like me for example that will like get really obsessed with it and then think wow this animal's really beautiful i wonder what other animals are really beautiful i'm gonna go ahead and just learn about animals forever (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it certainly definitely, you know, stands as a testament too, because it's like, you know, tigers certainly are, they're so, they're just such admirable animals, you know, they just, the versatility of their color to their, their unique features, uh, their variation in size, 
also it's like it's one of those things too it's like we really do look at tigers and we're like oh like they're so cute and they're so like they're so gorgeous but like if you stumbled across a tiger in the wild like i think you would immediately trigger like you know a fight or fight response so it's like i think it's purely because they're confined and we know that we're safe that i think we have the ability to appreciate them from a distance because i can tell you i love tigers but if i came across a tiger in the middle of a jungle i would be like i would probably like you know, poop myself. But. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that is true because um, I was at this uh, wildlife sanctuary nearby um, not too long ago where they have lions, and I was standing there, and I have never had any sort of any sort of fear response to any lion or any big cat or anything. I've been to many many zoos, never had a, any, never felt nervous or anything around them, but this lion. Um, it was like right before they were going to do the feedings. So the lions were starting to get a little bit like on edge. They were starting to pace a little bit and they were starting to get a little testy. And so yeah. I was standing there and I looked over at this one lion who was lying on the ground. Um, oh, it was a female, it was a lioness. And she was laying on the ground. She looked dead at me. She stood up and ran like directly towards me and like rushed the fence and she didn't do anything, right? Like she just rushed towards the fence and that was it. And she was kind of like making that like rumbling, growling sound that lions make. Yeah. Um, and and just that act of her like growling and running like in my direction, I about had a panic attack. <laughs> that was like yeah. it was an extremely different emotion than from what I usually get from looking at a lion. So that I think you're right that like safety does give us an like a different appreciation than like when you start to when you're in the moment and you're like, oh, there's actual risk involved. It, you know, I remember when I was no, I, I agree with you completely. Like, I think you you hit the nail on the head. Like that experience pretty much says everything. I because I, I had the sim, I had literally a very similar experience. I was when I was doing research over in Belize when I was studying jaguars. We went to the Belize Zoo, um, which is an incredible zoo. If you ever have the chance to go and visit, like please do. It, it's incredible. Um, they only have native species, um, and they they build their habitat naturally too. So what's really cool is that like they literally put the infrastructure they surround it around like natural forest. So it's like, they don't even really like try to manipulate the, the terrain. They just like keep it completely natural and they build their enclosures surrounding it. Sure. And that's where they keep their animals. And so they like to keep it as pure, as pure and like innate to the, the habitat of the animals. <laughs> just drop a fence around what was already yeah, there. <laughs> essentially, essentially. No, but seriously, essentially, because like I was walking around the Belize zoo. Do you know what, do you know what a paca is like, or an agouti? Um, oh, have you ever heard of like a Paco or an Agouti? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like an Agouti. Like, I think the names interchange between the two. Um, it, Actually, I think they're two different animals. And uh, I remember I was walking around the zoo and this this Paco like runs between like, Lily runs right past me. And I was like looking at one of my, my people I was working with and I was like, should we tell somebody that one of their packas are loose? And she was like, no, like, like they're, that's a wild packet. Like they just like <laughs> run throughout here. And I was like, holy, I was like, holy cow. Like this place is like completely wild, you know? And it was like, it was this little packa was just like running throughout the, like, you know, the, the sanctuary. And it, it was because like, it was because they built the sanctuary to be wild, you know? And they just had their enclosures, you know, fit to the, you know, the um, the specifications of their animals so they could be comfortable. But anyways, I remember I was looking at a jaguar uh, while I was walking up to its enclosure. And the jaguar was probably a juvenile. He had to be like no more than two, three years old, three, four, uh, something along that line. He wasn't fully grown, maybe like maybe one or two years of age. And I remember just like I was looking at him and he was just like looking at me and he was kind of pacing back and forth. And I remember I kind of like crouched down because I just kind of like wanted to like look at him at eye level. And he started like growling, but it wasn't, it was like that low rumble where it wasn't like a full like roar. And oh, I remember you can just like feel that feel in it. your chest. I remember I could feel it. Yeah, I could feel the just like it just reverberate off my body. And I could feel it's like my anxiety just start climbing. And I remember just thinking to myself, I was like, this is what sheer power looks like that's your instincts taking over your instincts are like you gotta go <laughs> yeah i know like that's like fear is it's primordial almost in itself it's like it never leaves you you know and so i was just like yeah i was like there's nothing more more primitive than our fear of death and i remember just my body just being like oh boy like this animal is much smaller than me and yet i'm my body is still reacting to it as if it's a potential danger you know 
Yeah. And so it says everything. But it's like a respectful fear, right? You're like, I'm, no, really <laughs> I'm afraid of you, but also you're pretty much the bossest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it was, it was, it is. It's cool. I, I think there's, there's a duplicity of, I think, like the fear and then like the admiration of like, I think the, the grace and the sheer strength that they have, you know. <laughs> We're good, but from way over there, from way exactly. over there, we are good. Yeah. <laughs> I'll watch you from behind here. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I feel like that's been a pretty comprehensive overview view of not only the tiger but our very strong feelings about the tiger i've had a lot of fun fangirling over tigers with you um so what have you been up to like what kind of projects are you involved with right now that you think that people should know about or like where can people follow along with what you're doing like online or anything like that yeah sure so you know, right now at the moment, um, I'm going through the, you know, the ins and outs, the the grueling process that is, you know, grad school. I'm trying to go into grad school and hopefully get my PhD uh, doing all that stuff. I'm, I really love doing research. Um, so that's like really kind of like a full time job right now at the moment. But uh, things kind of are a bit little tedious right now with uh, the COVID-19 outbreak. So it's like everybody's kind of on a bit of a lockdown. There's a hiatus. Uh you know, schools are kind of shut down, uh, classes are online. So it's kind of like, there's really not much for me to do really at this point right now. Um, I do work for the Cougar Network. Um, they are a nonprofit organization uh, doing an ongoing long-term research uh, project on the movement patterns of mountain lions throughout North America um, and even some little some parts of Canada where they get confirmed. And uh, I, that's pretty much what I also do. I work pretty much for that, uh, that organization. I manage their database and I collect information from online and I turn it and I put it input into the digital database. Um, and I handle like newsletters and like, let people know like, Hey, we confirmed the mountain lion in this area. And then, you know, at the end of the day, we'll probably generate this collaborative, you know, paper, uh, that we'll all formulate into, um, and then use it for, uh, publication, uh, for public knowledge, you know, and it help inform like conservation and management decisions. So it's really cool to be a part of that, like as a, um, be able to uh, contribute uh, to that kind of form of knowledge. And so that's really what I do right now. Um, where people can get to know me or get to contact me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at science with Tyus. You can also find me on Instagram at science with Tyus. Uh, my personal website is, uh, Williams. Um, it's dot wixsite.com. Um, and I think that's where people can also find my personal website. I can also leave you the link, the links and all the description too, if you want to, if you want them, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, it's pretty easy, pretty easy to get in touch with me. Um, you know, all my science communication stuff, most of it's on Twitter. So, you know, if people ever have questions, if they're ever curious about something, you know, people are always welcome to reach out to me. I, I don't, I'm, I'm harmless. <laughs> yeah, I, and I will, I will vouch for the fact that like you have one of the most delightful feeds on like all of Twitter. It's just full of awesome wildlife content, and it's always like educational, but also like usually pretty fun. And and you know, it's it's nothing too heavy usually, um, but it's it, it it's just uh, delightful. Really, like uh, if you're not already following Tyus, follow on Twitter because it is a fun trip. <laughs> it's been a pleasure really to be included in the community that's on science Twitter. You know, I've had nothing but um, just warm, welcoming and love and appreciation from them. So I'm so grateful for everybody on science Twitter there. It's really is such a uh, supportive community. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm really thankful for it. Yeah. They, everybody is so great. And I've just <laughs> made some great, I made some great friends too. It's so it's just, it's, it's awesome. I'm really happy to be a part of it and also, you know, be a, a strong and positive voice as well. I know. And that's how I found you. And here you are. So there you go. See, we're following through on connections. <laughs> yeah, digital connections. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you spending all this time with us today. This has been really, really fun. I have learned a lot and I have had an opportunity to kind of gush about one of my favorite animals with you. So I just I really appreciate you spending the time to share your voice with us. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Ellen, thanks so much for having me on. Hopefully I didn't have you for too long, but it really has been, uh, it's been super fun, uh, really mentally stimulating. Um, uh, and hopefully we can chat again at some point, sometime. Uh, always feel free to reach out if you ever just want to just uh, nerd out about animals. So always. thank you so much for having me on your podcast. No problem. Thanks so much. We'll see you later. See you, Ellen. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. 